Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was one of those weeks when the headlines exploded like a fireworks display with a final roaring barrage on Friday. In the realm of Trump's legal challenges, it was a terrible week for the former president with revelations of damaging likely testimony in the January 6th case from former Vice President Mike Pence and the Mar-a-Lago case from a lawyer counseling him on responding to a subpoena. Then on Friday, Trump's best legal hope of escaping trial was crippled by a decision from an appeals court rejecting his claim of immunity. The judge overseeing the January 6th prosecution quickly followed suit, rejecting Trump's similar challenge in that case. Though the looming question still remains, will these favorable developments be nullified if Trump manages to delay his legal reckonings until after the election? In Congress this week, the House of Representatives finally said enough to George Santos, who had become an albatross for Republicans, more than 100 of whom joined in to expel the inveterate fraudster. Santos now is facing serious and mounting federal criminal liability with no high office or congressional salary to shield him. And it didn't escape notice that while Republicans were removing Santos from their ranks, they were also swiftly progressing toward endorsing a presidential candidate with a comparable long record of fraud and dishonesty. This week in Congress, we also learned details of the deep involvement of Pennsylvania member Scott Perry with the Trump and company schemes to steal the election. Yet another reminder that to date, nobody in Congress has faced repercussions for their efforts in support of Trump's attempted coup. And the main focus in the country and the world continued to be on the Israel-Hamas war, where a seven-day cessation of hostilities that produced the return to Israel of over 100 hostages ended, and Israel resumed its military mission to uproot Hamas from Gaza. The resumption is certain to increase the already substantial pressure on Biden, posing the prospect of straining to the breaking point Israel's most important supporter and arguably the most critical figure in the war. To analyze these blockbuster developments and their implications for the angry, impassioned battles in the U.S. and around the world, we welcome a terrific roundtable of prominent guests. And they are... Senator Heidi Heitkamp, the former Senator of North Dakota, is now the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, a CNBC and ABC contributor, and the co-founder of the One Country Project, which helps Democrats reconnect with rural voters. She held a number of high-ranking positions in North Dakota state government before being elected in 2013 as North Dakota's first woman senator. Thank you so much for joining Talking Feds today, Senator Heitkamp. Thanks so much for having me. Carol Lee the managing editor for Washington at NBC News, where she has worked since 2017. She has covered the White House for various organizations since 2008 
and those organizations include The Wall Street Journal and Politico. Carol also recently served as the president of the White House Correspondents Association. Carol, thanks very much for returning to Talking Fits. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Charlie Sykes, the founder and editor-at-large of The Bulwark, where he hosts the Bulwark's daily podcast, writes the daily newsletter, Morning Shots, and as we were just discussing, fields uh, multiple requests from people dying to be on his show. He is also the author of nine, count them, nine books, most recently, How the Right Lost Its Mind. Charlie, thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you. All right. Some big news today, you could say. Let's cover, you know, a chunk of Trump. And then it's all, I'm always happy to depart from those topics. And lots happened in Congress. And so much has happened around the world and in Israel that I'd like to take that up as well. So starting in Trump land, the federal appeals court in Washington just this morning rejected Trump's motion to dismiss the civil lawsuit against him linked to the January 6, 2021 riot based on his immunity argument. Okay, it's a civil case brought by a couple officers who were hurt in the melee, but would you expect it to have an effect on Trump's efforts in the criminal side where he's making immunity arguments as well? I thought about this how overwhelming it must be for Trump and his lawyers to be fighting a multi-front legal war. And it just got worse today, in part because the D.C. Circuit decision was unanimous. It's not likely going to be reversed in Bank, although I think he will try. And now the correlation between this effort and the criminal action that's being pursued by Smith, I think, creates real hazard for Donald Trump. And then think about this. These plaintiffs led the effort. They took it to court. But think of all the people who were damaged on January 6th. If there's culpability, even if a small amount of culpability, the damages could be overwhelming. And so this just adds to the legal trouble. And I think, you know, if I can flip to the political aspect, yeah. I just think that it's going to reinforce Trump's absolute vision that he needs to get reelected for all of this to go away. And what about this on the political side? It's first and foremost a legal ruling. He can't hide behind his presidential office because he was acting as a candidate, not officially as a president. But doesn't that inform his broader political argument about the January 6th developments? It seems like they may not have made that determination about whether he was acting in his official capacity. They said it's a factual discussion that needs to be had in a trier of fact and not in a kind of summary fashion. Very fair. In fact, let me put on my lawyer's hat for a moment and just say a couple quick things about it. As the senator says, so three judges, one a George W. Bush appointee, one a Trump appointee, one an Obama appointee, the chief judge. All three wrote opinions, the Obama appointee for the court, but they all endorsed a view 
on the law. And Senator properly points out they need more facts to see how the standard applies. But they did all endorse a view that stated a kind of bright line between a president acting as a political candidate versus someone acting in an official capacity. And they talked about context mattering, a state of the union versus a political rally. And while I agree he'll be able to develop the facts. And this civil suit really is now going to kind of go away from our view. They'll, they'll work on this for maybe years, but it does come home to the criminal case because at least that part of the criminal case that focuses on January 6th itself, they'll have to decide on the facts. But it does seem to me that that distinction is very much in play. Was he an official president there? Or was he acting to reelect himself what I was going to say was, to the senator's point, is that this reinforces for former President Trump the need to get reelected, that that is the only way, and he said it as much himself, that, that all of this goes away. And what's so interesting about that is he's not only saying that out loud, but he is, it's motivating to his supporters. So it's actually a tactic that he and his campaign can use to get people motivated to go and vote for him. Now, there's this school of thought that thinks, you know, as this drags on and people pay closer attention, is this going to be too much chaos? That all remains to be seen. But for now, at least, it's a very motivating thing. It also makes him a little just more, if it's possible, unpredictable in the sense that it's really all on the line here for him. And so it's already expected to be a very ugly race. And there's a lot of things that are going to be said and, and done. And but that hanging over all of this, the prospect that if, you know, he can't in another way get rid of all these legal troubles, that winning re-election is the path, then it just motivates him to do more and really double down on some of the things that we've seen. And however this plays into the Jack Smith case, if he can delay that even further because of, of these kinds of developments, that's also plays in his favor politically. Are you saying that it actually could serve as a motivating force for his base on the argument of, guys, look at me, I and all of you now are really in trouble here. You've got to come out and make this go away. Absolutely. Look what the Biden Justice Department has done to me. Look at all of these people who are out to get me. I mean, it's all of the arguments that he's already made and has been making for years now, but it's adding that extra element of, here's how we stop them. You need to get out. You need to vote. Tell everybody to vote. Get your friends to vote. Like what? all of that, it really stirs it up. It's the, I'm your martyr. You need to protect me. And I'll protect you as a word. I agree with all of that, but also it makes him even more dangerous than he was before because it makes him desperate. Someone who has his personal freedom on the line is going to do and say things and foment things that a normal presidential candidate wouldn't. And this is, again, a reminder that he's not a normal presidential campaign and the stakes are not normal. I am not a lawyer here, but I was really fascinated by this ruling because I do think that it has real significant implications, both for the Jack Smith case, but also for the politics because of the scheduling issue. And let me just explain. I mean, and Harry, you know more about this than I do, but Judge Chutkin seems committed to go ahead with an early trial. I mean, this is the one that might actually go to trial in March. The big question mark hanging over that case, as I understand, is when she rules on this immunity question, there'll be an immediate appeal on that question to the, the circuit court and maybe all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then the question becomes, 
will they stay the actual trial while they litigate the immunity issue? If the immunity issue is resolved or seems this clear to the appeals court, I think that makes it less likely. So I'm kind of throwing these things out here. I'm number one, I mean, just in terms of the politics and what it means for the future of the country, the desperation level of Trump world has just notched up a little bit. This may have significant implications. And Harry, you tell me what you think for the scheduling on all this, because we're seeing this kabuki dance. Who's going to go first? Who know what trial dates are open? You can tell that Fulton County is watching Eileen Cannon. They're all watching what's going on up in up in D.C. And I think that obviously one of the big, most relevant questions of 2024 is, will these trials take place before the election? Will there be convictions before the election? What happens to these cases, in fact, if they are not resolved until after the election? All kinds of these questions. So this does seem like a BFD to me. It's a really, really important and trenchant point. And let me talk about on the legal frame. First, I I totally agree with all three of you. He's now like a wounded bull in the arena with, you know, fume from the nostrils, all the more desperate. On the timing, which is everything, you're right. So there are all these pretrial motions he's filing everywhere. Immunity is special because immunity is a right not to stand trial. So if it's decided against you, you can normally appeal it immediately, whereas everything else, you have to wait for a conviction. Now here, Judge Chutkin, he's made his big immunity motion, and unlike most of his trash, throw against the wall, see what sticks. It's a decent motion. And it's been pending with Judge Chutkin, whom I think has been awaiting just this decision. And we can expect her to issue an opinion denying immunity quickly. Then he will appeal. But I actually think this is a sign that the court, again, George W. Bush appointee, Trump appointee, Obama appointee, overall, the law has been laid down here. The lines have been drawn. And I think they'll make quick work of it and actually decide it on the merits. So the question of a stay will then be, what does the Supreme Court do? Do they take up the motion? And while they do, stay things. That would be logical if they're taking up the motion because you don't want to go through everything only to find out he had a right not to stand trial. This is fresh off the presses. And my speculation, I have thought about this before, is they don't do that. But if they do, and I think we are talking about a couple months from now, it is equivalent to totally inserting themselves into the middle of the presidential election. I think the fact that, as you mentioned, Senator, a a Trump appointee joins, has his own opinion, makes it less likely. But that will be the big wild card. But on not just the merits, but on timing and delay, It's a really bad day for Trump because it augurs at least the distinct possibility that this one trial will not only start, because Fulton County might start, but start and be finished and there be a judgment before the election. Yeah, I want to add something to this because I recently chaired a panel with Ty Cobb and a number of legal scholars on where is Trump's head and what is he most afraid of? And their argument was he's most afraid of civil liability. He really thinks he can beat the reasonable doubt standard. The standard of proof is different in civil cases than it is in criminal cases. And he also is really protective of his money. And think about the extent of the damages 
that would result from a determination of culpability here by Trump, uh, civil responsibility. And so I just think that this has an extra kind of punch for him because he's always thought he's going to beat the criminal cases. He's more worried about the civil cases because the standard of proof is different. And to that point, the fraud case brought by the New York AG is going to complete within a couple weeks. And he may have chances on appeal, but he's going to get shellacked at the trial level for a lot of money. All right. Huge development, but I do want to canvas others. So a couple big evidentiary points. And I want to start with Mike Pence, which I think is both big and very interesting. We learn of these details that Pence actually decided not to preside at the January 6th certification, as apparently Trump had been urging him to do until his son, you know, put steel back in his spine by saying, Dad, you took an oath. And then there's just a lot of revelations about his telling Trump, actually, to cite the famous comma, you know, I don't I don't think you've got any play here, which the in his book was, you know, I don't think you have any play here, the importance of a comma. Anyway, your thoughts about Pence's testimony, you know, what it'll feel like at trial, but also politically, the vice president, loyal servant, making clear that some of Trump's defenses really are all wet. Well, I mean, one thing is Christmas Day. I can't believe, I mean, what a Christmas day. Defense household, right? You know, they were, that was like, okay, <laughs> no one had anything else to do, I guess. Um <laughs> So fun times on Christmas 2020, that phone call. But politically, it's just not going to change anything for in terms of Trump supporters. I mean, you saw Pence, he didn't even make it past the third debate. I mean, he's clearly making a a play for history and putting this out there. The leaks are incredible now that more people have their hands on some of this information. And he has a very compelling story to tell. So I think there's there's a political arena where this isn't going to change the minds of people who support former President Trump. And then there's a legal arena, which I'm not fully equipped to analyze, but you guys are, um, where maybe it'll carry more weight. So I'm absolutely fascinated by the whole Mike Pence story, you know, on on so many different levels. Uh, He was such a slavish loyalist throughout the presidency and then did find his backbone. Also, this story of deciding not to show up on January 6th and then having his mind change, which is the the one new new element this week. You know, it's just a reminder how contingent history often is, how how it really comes down so to true. to these yeah. things. And and you know, I was thinking back to that Christmas, thinking what what was I doing that Christmas day? What did I think was going to happen? And I think some of us were somewhat alarmed at the possibility that the things could go sideways. In retrospect, it was a much closer thing than any of us imagined at the time. I of course agree with Carol that this is not going to change the minds of the Trump base. But it once again raises the question, what will Republicans like Mike Pence do and say in 2024? What what role will they play? Because we have this extraordinary moment where we have you know, hyper-partisanship. But has there ever been a campaign in which there have been so many people from within the president's own inner circle who are saying, this guy is unfit for office, he is a danger to the country. You're going to have Liz Cheney out there. You're going to have his former attorney general, his former chief of staff, his former national security advisor. I mean, you just keep running it down. There's no historical parallel. So far, 
that hasn't broken through. So far, that hasn't changed the dynamic. But it is going to be interesting. You know, are they going to be making more public statements? Is Mike Pence now going to take a higher profile and say, I'm not running for president. I have no political future whatsoever. This is what I owe my country. I'm going to say this. I don't know whether they're going to do it. It would be compelling to do a montage of all the people who sat in the Oval Office with Donald Trump, who then look in the camera and say, people, do not do this. You do not want this man back in power again. So my colleagues at NBC actually did that story a few, maybe a couple of months ago and went and talked to the entire cabinet. For, and obviously there was a lot of turnover. So there was it was not just one set of cabinet officials and none of them endorsed him. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And supposedly it was always like that behind the scenes. But can we, Terry, for just a moment, and I was going to ask you about this, Senator, on Charlie's contingency point. My take home was, holy cow, we came close because Trump's basic play here, it wasn't necessary for violence, it, but it was first and foremost for chaos. And talk about chaos. It comes January 6th. The guy who the Constitution of the United States, 12th Amendment says, shows up and does the vote. Oh, he's not here now. It looks as if Senator Grassley is now stepping up. We've got like a few hours until the vote is just scuttled. How easy at that point it might have been for Grassley or Mever to say, there's real doubt here. We better send it back to the states. And as Donald Trump had said already, just just get it back to the states and my Congress members will do the rest. You know, 25 states for Republicans at that point. So it really seems to me, you know, a, a parallel universe not very far from ours where, man, it could have been otherwise. You know, we really kind of came Closer than we knew in a way. What would have happened if Pence just hadn't showed up on the 6th, Grassley presides, etc.? So if you have thoughts about that. I wasn't surprised by it because I know Chuck Grassley and remember Chuck Grassley actually tweeted that I'll be presiding because Pence isn't right. showing up. Right. So I don't think anyone should be surprised. I don't think it makes Mike Pence look very good because he had to be talked off the wall, because obviously he said, my friend. What he really was saying is, my political future, because I know I can't infuriate the mega crowd. And so profiles and courage, sometimes it takes a while for people to get there, but <laughs> apparently he did. But I think for a lot of us who, who lived that time, the Trump early years, and you saw him go through chiefs of staff, and you saw him go through secretaries of defense, you saw him go through secretaries of state. This is not a surprise. What I would say is all those people that Carol was talking about who may line up, the John Kellys, and you know, I could list some other folks that haven't been mentioned yet, who may come to the front. Trump's answer is, well, if you thought I was so bad, why did you work for me? And so he's got an answer for all of this. And I don't think it's particularly persuasive to the MAGA crowd. It may be persuasive to moderates who will decide the election in states like Missouri or Michigan and Wisconsin. But for a lot of people, it's too little too late. Close out question. Carol, you said twice we're in this jujitsu dynamic where literally every piece of bad news for Trump, in your view, or you, it can be seen as good news in the sense that it just reinforces the high stakes of 2024, maybe more motivates the Trump base to see what's on the line, etc. Is that basically everybody's view here that good news is bad news, as it were? 
I think that there is a theory that it's death by a thousand cuts. Eventually, the folks who just don't want chaos, but the polls don't bear that out. And I, but think about this. A court in New York basically said there was evidence that he raped someone and it hasn't had any effect. So you can take all of the other stuff, immunity and should he taken papers home? And, you know, that's not personal to people. But accusing someone and having it proven in a court of law that you are, in fact, someone who sexually assaulted someone, that hasn't had an impact. So it's hard to see how any of these things that are much less approachable by uh, the average voter, certainly the mega voter, will have an effect. It occurs to me, Harry, that I'm about to say something that is that is weirdly contrarian, because I think we've been so beaten down by this that it's like nothing matters. Everything terrible makes him stronger. And, and I, I certainly understand that. And that's what the polls would say. So to say, I still think that there's a political downside to being a convicted felon feels like it's contrarian at this moment. That somebody who is led out of a courtroom <laughs> in ankle bracelets is probably not a good look for a presidential candidate. Right. That there might be some negative consequences to being convicted in a federal court by a jury of his peers. And this has now become, oh, you're so naive. And okay, wait, wait, wait. I mean, I know that things are weird that we are on Earth 2.0, but is it possible that we haven't completely passed the reality veil? That a, a trial for sedition and racketeering and rape might actually be a, a bad thing? So there was something in the NBC's most recent poll that showed a head-to-head of former president and President Biden. Biden was trailing and all of that. But the only place where it shifted was if the former President Trump was convicted. And that there was a, a shift in how voters viewed and the, and the numbers changed. That's our poll. It's obviously like very early and all of that. But there was an attitude shift in voters based on, you know, he's facing all of this stuff. But then once he's convicted, they feel a little differently. Remember, it's a guy who's never been above 50 percent. And there are really two kinds of Trump supporters. There's the absolute hardcore Magites whom we're all positing. The worse it gets for him, the, the stronger their appeal. But there is 10% of his 46% or whatever that might be persuadable if only on the theory of, can we just get past this? And it, it wouldn't take that many to peel off. But what a remarkable sort of political dynamic we're in. That I mean, it seems to me, starting from what, Access Hollywood? People on the other side have seen, oh, well, now he's done. Oh, well, now he's done. And, you know, he has more than nine lives. Charlie, the other point about this, to your point about timing of all this litigation, you have to look at the primary timing and momentum that comes. The convictions, if they do have an effect, will come too late for him to not secure the Republican nomination. No, I mean, I, I keep trying to think about what's going to happen here in my hometown of Milwaukee next fall. Will Donald Trump actually show up wearing an ankle bracelet? And I, I have this dark uh, fantasy of, it's not a fantasy, I think it's just dystopian, of Donald Trump stepping out from behind the podium, pulling up his pants leg, showing the ankle bracelet and saying, I wear this as a badge of honor, I wear this for you, and the crowd goes nuts. But again, this election will be decided, and we all know how it's going to be decided. It'll be decided in what, you know, seven to nine swing states by suburban voters and 
There's nothing about this that strikes me as being particularly helpful for him to get back the voters that uh, did not support him in 2020. How many voters? I want to I see that focus group where the voters who voted against Donald Trump in 2020 and for Joe Biden say, yes, but you know, having seen all of these trials, now I'm more inclined <laughs> yeah. to vote for Donald Trump. I just don't see that dynamic. Although the counter dynamic is... I was willing to vote for Joe Biden and give him a chance. I don't like his leadership. There's a different dynamic now because Joe Biden's been president and you have a comparison factor. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is that you have former President Trump who benefits by who his opponent is, right? President Biden and President Biden, whose whole entire theory of his getting reelected is that he benefits based on who his opponent is. And people, you know, we all know, don't like either of them. And so it's not like if people are looking at the choice, you, you see it in focus groups. They think, well, the economy is not as good. And well, yeah, he is that. But and, and they don't necessarily want to vote for President Biden either. Got very 2016 vibes there. And I have to say that enter the dynamic of reproductive rights, because if you're going to keep suburban women who may have gone to Biden, aren't satisfied with the leadership but are choice voters. And so I don't think you can take choice out of or reproductive rights out of this dynamic politically. Although possibly also add in Israel, which we'll be talking about shortly. What a, what a complicated brew. Okay, there's so much else happening, including Senator in Congress, which had a totally historic day, the House votes by a three-to-one margin with 100 Republicans supporting to expel George Santos. But let me just ask you, Senator, for starters, because one of the defenses of Santos was this is a bad precedent. There's only been uh, five before him, and he's the first who wasn't either convicted of a crime or a member of the Confederacy. Do you fear this as a precedent or given the ethics report and the mind-boggling breadth and depth of fraudulent conduct, do you think it's sui generis and it's just fine? I would tell you honestly, I would not have voted to expel him. I think it is a bad precedent. I think just like like now, I mean, we're impeaching Biden because Trump was impeached. Now, I happen to think there was legitimate grounds for impeachment of Trump both times. But now it's kind of like we've lowered the bar. So this is going to become a political tactic. He had already said he's not running for re-election, And I think this was driven more by Republican moderates needing to have a stake in the ground. I'm not, you know, a partisan. I'm going to pull the roots out of corruption. And I just think it's a bad precedent. I wouldn't have voted to remove him. I mean, once the vote was stewarded, it is true, these hundred Republicans, were they going to want to defend George Santos, you know, it's the kind of dynamic that once it looks like it's going to pass, a lot more people vote for. Carol or Charlie, what do you think about that? Well, the thing that I was struck by is that there's no guide for what behavior rises to the level. And so I agree with the senator. We've already seen things that are, you know, very rare and historic and don't happen very often in our government get turned into these like, well, woo, it's Wednesday. Let's just like <laughs> impeach somebody or something. I don't know. Let's like do an impeachment inquiry, whatever. It's You can see this taking on a life of its own. And, and I haven't checked my phone since we've 
been talking, but, you know, you can envision former President Trump saying, well, so-and-so said this about me, and so they should be expelled. And then the Republicans have to go through the exercise that we've seen them go through to try to please the former president because he said something. And so it just feels very, like, it's different territory. Whatever the standard is, sort of like, you know, recognizing pornography when you see it. I mean, George Santos, you look at him and go, okay, yeah, that's the kind of person that we ought to throw (laughs) out of here. I mean, it's hard to get past the squalid details uh, here. It does take two thirds vote to expel. So it's not something that can be done on a strictly partisan basis. But what I'm fascinated by is a point that Adam Kinzinger made. He wrote on, on his Substack. he said, a liar, fraud, money launderer, indicted hanger honor is expelled from Congress. Well, a liar, fraud, money launderer, indicted hanger honor is leading the GOP race for president. This is not a conundrum at all. In fact, it's a feature of today's GOP. So here you have Republicans saying, OK, yeah, we know we can't have a total crook and a liar like uh, George Santos, you know, in our in our midst. And yet each and every one of them is going to turn around and support Donald Trump for the presidency. I mean, it's one of those interesting moments. So you compare yeah, George Santos is thrown out of Congress, you know, facing 23 indictments. Is that right? 23 indictments? 23 counts, yeah. Which may now increase. The Ethics Committee was yet new stuff. Yeah. Well, and there's Donald Trump with 91 felony counts. And the same people are saying, yeah, this is completely disqualifying, are like, yeah, we we can't hold Donald Trump to that. So that was an interesting moment. It was also an interesting moment watching the entire Republican House leadership vote to keep George Santos uh, in office. I figured they were triangulating all of this, but It was an ugly moment. It narrows the Republican majority. This is like a a side note, but we keep thinking like, well, are they going to get their act together, the Republicans? Are they going to become less dysfunctional? I mean, what if Kevin McCarthy now chooses at this moment to say, I am so bitter. F all you guys. I'm also quitting Congress before Christmas. I don't know what the math is right now, but suddenly Mike Johnson's majority becomes really, really narrow here. I suppose they dodge a bullet by taking a little bit of the clown show out, but they are nowhere close to, you know, closing the circus that we're going to see over the next year and a half. Yeah, can I ask you guys to take this up just from the raw politics of Mike Johnson? You know, he staked his claim. He lost this one. He's already inspired the ire of the apparently all-powerful MAGA right. And as Charlie says, just the numbers, it's its one fewer for him. How are things looking for him after today? Well, one of the things that he did was he said he wasn't going to vote to expel, but he told his members that they should vote however they felt their conscience should let them vote. This was a big deal, obviously, but this really significant tests are going to be in January and in February when he has to thread these needles that none of his predecessors have easily thread when it comes to spending, keeping the government open and all of those things. The other thing we're going to see politically is a very expensive, very hard fought special election that could give some preview of what the dynamics and battle lines are going to be in 2024 in New York for his seat. And people are going to spend a lot of money. There's going to be a lot of candidates. And that's something that we will see. I think it's, the governor has 10 days to set a date or and then it's like 78 to 80 days after that, the election has to be held. And so that's going to happen in the middle of all of that. And so there's a lot here politically. And for the speaker, he's had this honeymoon and that seems to be eroding a little bit day by day. And it's really going to be, once everybody gets through the holiday cheer, it's going to be 
really hard for him. I envision that he has like the scales in his office and he puts one on the one on the side of the right and then says, oh, now I need to keep the moderates happy. So we're going to hold a vote on expulsion of, of Santos. But now I need to put something over here. So we're going to allow the impeachment inquiry into Biden to go forward. And so I think I think he understands and intuitively this balancing act. But I think it's a house of cards. I mean, I think this is going to crumble and it's going to crumble, as Carol said, when the rubber meets the road, which is on budget decisions. Yeah, at least he does seem to be wanting to calibrate in a way McCarthy often shied away from. Let's keep it in the House. So Representative Scott Perry, we had a bizarre, legally speaking, look at text on his phone that he's been trying to protect on the ground of speech and debate, where it was unsealed and then for. Four hours later, it was resealed. But, you know, that's very late. That's dinosaur time in, in today's <laughs> social media world. So we saw it. And he is completely in the thick of it in one aspect of the alleged criminal conduct, the one involving Jeff Clark and the DOJ. I just want to get your thoughts, picking up on what you had said, Charlie, and everyone. There's this whole uh, big fraternity of members of Congress who were really deeply involved in the uh, machinations leading up to January 6th, who so far have kind of gotten away scot-free. Do you see the Day of Reckoning coming for them or just too much there? And it'll just be, you know, eventually just swept under the carpet of history. I'm thinking it probably is going to get it swept under the rug because, I mean, the pattern is full. My darker suspicion is that Scott Perry is going to end up being deputy attorney general in the next Trump presidency. I mean, this is one thing that keeps striking me as you as you look at some of these people. What happened to your contrarian views, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing it down. Scott Perry, deputy attorney. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he could end up as secretary of state. I don't know. Also deputy, huh? Yeah, I was going to say. He's at least earned the top job. Oh, you, think, you, you don't think, you don't think uh, Jim Jordan? All right. Anyway, go ahead. Jim Jordan didn't pass the bar exam, so. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you, you read Robert Kagan's piece in in the Washington Post. Yes. Everyone's talking about that, by the way. But we also, should, and the, yeah. the, the Axios report, they have the, the vetting materials that they're already using for the next Trump term. And it's very clear that actual qualifications or expertise or experience are not particularly valuable. What they're looking for is people who have been thoroughly red-pilled, who watch and listen to Tucker Carlson and are true believers. And, and this is the other thing, kind of, a, I think, an underappreciated thing, because we keep focusing on Donald Trump. But a lot of these characters, these fringe, nutty characters, you know, that, that pop up in January 6th, were kept on the fringes. But they're going to be in the center. They're going to be in the room if there's another Trump presidency. These are the kinds of people who are not going to tell the president what he cannot do. They're not going to tell the president no. And I think this is something that people really ought to understand that don't ignore the people who are there, the, the people that you would normally think of as the residents of the fever swamp that we used to in the before times kind of roll our eyes and decide not to pay too much attention to, those guys are coming. Well, look, I mean, this is obviously part and parcel. I said we were done with him, gosh <laughs> darn it, but look what he said he will do to the DOJ. But I do want to contradict Charlie, maybe just a little bit. I think that if the special counsel saw that a crime was committed, he may not 
limit himself just to the current indicted. And so I think it just depends on where the evidence leads. If it is tangential to the broader claim, I think it's not something he's going to touch. But if there's a smoking gun there, and I don't think we know what Smith knows. And so I'd leave that door open for potential indictments of sitting members of Congress. Well, I hope you're right. Let me make a prosecutor's point. In the summer of 2022, they served a subpoena on his phone. That is not a move the DOJ takes lightly. It involves a lot of procedural sign-offs. And now once this evidence comes to them, if it's smoking, they won't ignore it. Again, subject to the proviso of which Charlie Sykes shows up next November, because (laughs) we can imagine that he would just fire Jack Smith to General uh, Huzzahs from his supporters. I'll just say again, from my vantage point of DOJ, this is a long, long investigation. They are still looking for some of the thousand plus folks from January 6th themselves, the actual marauders, and assuming that Biden wins, even if Trump is convicted, to me, they're not closing up shop. It might not be with Smith, but there's a lot to play out here. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar answers the question, what exactly does it mean to file for bankruptcy? And to explain it to us, we welcome Blair Saki. Blair was named to Variety's prestigious list 10 Comics to Watch in 2022 and was listed as one of Vulture's comedians you should and will follow in 2020. She's the co-creator and star of the acclaimed digital series Blair's Lair, which follows a millennial agoraphobe with questionable morals. In addition to stand-up and acting, Blair can currently be heard voicing characters in several animations, including the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie, Adult Swim's Hot Future, Netflix's Q-Force, Comedy Central's Fairview, and FXX's Good Morning Pickles. And with that, I give you Blair Saki on Bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is a legal process in which individuals or businesses seeking relief from excessive debt can start their financial lives over. Okay, sounding very good so far. Ending the process of creditors demanding to be paid. Love that. Filing for bankruptcy starts a process through which a debtor's assets are liquidated. Ooh, okay, sounding less good. That is, converted to cash to pay debts. Or, alternatively, one where a debtor may seek to keep assets through a plan of reorganization through which some portion of the debts are repaid over time. Okay, it sounds like layaway, kind of. You know, chip away, layaway, chip away. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution authorized Congress to enact uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies. This uniform federal law provides a common set of rules that govern all bankruptcy cases throughout the country. Bankruptcy proceedings take place in federal bankruptcy courts and are overseen by bankruptcy judges appointed by federal courts of appeal rather than the president. There are a number of different types of bankruptcy proceedings, each of which serves a different purpose. 
They generally are identified by the chapter in which they are found in the bankruptcy code. For example, Chapter 7 Liquidation Bankruptcy is the most common type of bankruptcy available to both individuals and businesses. Love that, all-inclusive. It involves the appointment of a trustee to take charge of and liquidate a debtor's property and turn the proceeds over to creditors. Individuals are allowed to exempt small amounts of property from being sold. For example, an individual debtor might be able to keep an inexpensive car or tools they need to run their business. Chapter 11, Reorganization, is more typically used by businesses and it allows a debtor to defer and alter how long it will take to repay debt and how much will be repaid. The reorganization allows a business to continue functioning rather than be shut down with its assets sold off for the benefit of creditors. Okay, that one sounds more abstract, more creative. I like that about chapter 11. Reorganization. Okay, chapter 13 is the wage earner bankruptcy, which allows individuals with regular incomes to retain some of their property and develop a plan to repay some or all of their debts. It is simpler than chapter 11, available only to individuals and, at present, only available to individuals who have less than $2,750,000 in debt. Okay, so unless you're super rich, you can do this one. This sounds nice. Love that they are providing so many different options. It's great. It's like a menu for bankruptcy. Who knew? Although bankruptcy can provide a fresh start, there are long-lasting negative consequences to filing. For example, credit agencies may report a bankruptcy for as long as 10 years, and credit scores will be impacted as a result. And bankruptcy does not necessarily wipe the slate clean. Certain debts cannot be discharged through the process, including child support, alimony, most taxes, most student loans, and court fines. For Talking Feds, I'm Blair Saki. Thank you very much to Blair Saki for explaining bankruptcy. Blair's first hour special, Live from the Big Dog, is out now on Live Nation's live entertainment streamer, Veeps. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hi, I'm Maribel Hernandez-Rivera, a Deputy National Political Director at the ACLU. The promise of America is to serve as a beacon of hope and freedom for people fleeing persecution, violence, war, and human rights violations around the world. Yet, the Biden administration has chosen to replicate harmful and illegal Trump-era policies that ban people from seeking asylum at the southern border, betraying the ideals that represent the best of our country. Biden's asylum ban is causing needless suffering and placing people at grave risk. The ACLU successfully sued the Trump administration when it implemented asylum bans. And now we're suing the Biden administration over their own ban. For more on how the ACLU is fighting for the rights of asylum seekers, go to ACLU.org. 
All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rosé wine to see if there's truly a best way to rosé. First, rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds, but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 hours, as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called saignée which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in Champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé, but the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love, and love what you find, only at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. One more huge headline this morning comes from the Middle East with the cessation of hostilities having ended and Israel resuming the attack. We haven't generally, it's a little bit out of the talking fed strike zone, but it's just been the biggest story for several weeks. And especially because you're here, Carol, and you've done some really valuable reporting. I did want to canvas the crowd on this for a few minutes. And I want to focus in on a, on a really good story you did that has to do with Biden and just whether now that there will be presumably a, a redoubling of opposition to Israel's military action or louder voices saying there should be a ceasefire. Obviously, that's not what Israel wants. And so far, Biden, I think you put it really well, has, you know, the argument that failed for him when he was vice president, he's now the president, of keeping Israel, in this case, Netanyahu, not an unblemished character, close, now falls under tremendous pressure. So I wonder if you could just speak to what you see 
as the overall situation involving Biden and Israel and the now resumption of hostilities? Well, the resumption of hostilities is a real big disappointment to the White House. They worked really hard to try to get the pause extended. That obviously didn't work. But what we've seen and what we wrote about this week is this is a policy, what you're seeing coming out of this Biden administration, that is run by one person, and that is Joe Biden. And it is based on beliefs that he has had for decades. And one of the things that my colleague, Courtney Kuby and I were, when we were asking people about what's been going on behind the scenes, what's the president saying, this and that, is that we were told in those early weeks, this was when everybody was praising his hug Israel close strategy. They loved his speeches before it really turned and everyone was calling on him, including members of his own party to have a ceasefire. He was saying privately like, oh, look, President Obama only calls him Barack. Barack and his staff, they said I was wrong in 2014 when I said the way to deal with Israel, because 2014, that was another instance where Israel and Gaza were at war. I said, hug Israel close. The President Obama didn't do that. So he had no influence. And I was right then and I was right now. And he also brought up in private this quote from former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, where he said Joe Biden had been wrong on every foreign policy issue for going back four decades or something like that. And one scene in our story is how the president is talking with aides about Israel and he turns to one and he slaps him on the arm and says, like, who's wrong now? And, you know, he really just believes that this is what to do. And that was early days. Now he's tempered that a little bit. He's not saying those kinds of things privately now, we're told, but he still very much believes that this is the approach. The pause was reinforcing of that. Getting out hostages was reinforcing of his views. And he's out there on a limb. He's out on a limb a little bit more than some of his staff and certainly with a lot of members of his party. And it's one instance in talking to progressive Democrats, they're like, he's bent on a lot of stuff that we've pressured him on, you know, and when it comes to things that he's dug in on in this, he just he will not. He's not he's not bending so far. I saw nodding heads. I want to get to you in a second. But just uh, I wanted to point out, I had a one-on-one -on -one with Michael Oren, former ambassador to the U.S. from Israel. And he put it, I think maybe we should drop it right here. It's 30 seconds. It was, I thought, very memorable and newsworthy. He said, Biden is crucifying himself on a very large cross. And we are that cross. Joe Biden, what he used to tell me, because I spent a significant amount of time with him, he used to always quote his father. And his father used to say to him, never crucify yourself on a small cross. He is crucifying himself on a very large cross. And that cross is us. And we have to be, we have to appreciate it. We have to try to help him to help us as much as we can. Uh, we can't always, we can't agree to an open-ended ceasefire. I don't know if he even wants that. But he's really crucifying himself here. And it's uh, something that historians will write about. I'll write about it. I have never seen anything. I've been in U.S.'s relationship, I don't know how to tell you long, you know, as a practitioner, as an historian for 50 years, and I've never seen anything like this. This very strong instinctual support from way back for Israel, knowing Biden as people do, what do you think underlies it? Is it just a, a true independent moral sense of right and wrong? I think he definitely believes that Israel is a critical ally in the Mideast, that is the world he grew up in. He grew up in a world where the Democratic Party was fighting for the state of Israel and the Republican Party was sitting off to the side. That's changed with the evangelical 
quota here. But now the Democratic Party has this interesting dynamic between APAC and J Street. And young voters, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Set aside young voters, even within the Jewish community, which is a huge giving block to the Democratic Party. I mean, take a look at the percentage of large donations to the Democratic Party that come from Jewish people, Americans, and you will see an interesting dynamic. And and certainly J Street believes that APAC was too pro-Netanyahu. He's been the dividing feature. Netanyahu has been the entity, the person who has divided the American Jewish community, in my opinion. And now you have the emergence of J Street, who has been much more pro two-state solution. But what has unified the community has really been Hamas, the brutality. So when Biden feels comfortable, it's because Hamas was so brutal in their attack. And it is hard to see supporting the people of Gaza who have in fact selected Hamas as their leader their leadership entity. And so I think I think it really is a generational change for the Democratic Party. And Biden represents the old school kind of stand by Israel, right or wrong. There are significant ally. There are people with a, a more nuanced, younger perspective, even going to what's happening on college campuses with uh, students for Palestinian justice. Two-part question for everyone, but let me start with you, Charlie, and this will be our closeout. What are the current politics for Biden, including the um, apparent strong opposition to his policies from young people? And do you foresee a situation? I mean, Carol basically suggested, if I understood it rightly, that he expects this. They might have liked a somewhat longer cessation, but the fact that they're going back and continuing this military objective of, of dismantling Hamas... Biden's not going to oppose. So that's the question. Besides the political analysis, do you see a tangible prospect for Biden holding Israel not so close as he has to date? I wish I could see a best case scenario for Joe Biden. I I think there's a couple of problems that are, uh, first, let's talk about the domestic politics. I I think the fracturing of the Democratic coalition is real. I think it's very, very dangerous. Um, It's very, very emotional. And I think it's going to last for a long time. I think that you you see this among many liberal Jews who are looking at their former progressive allies and going, really seriously? I mean, you know, you are willing to make these kinds of rationalizations or what sounds like a defense of Hamas. That is a real division, and there's some real anger at Joe Biden for being a staunch supporter of Israel. You've also pointed out the dilemma of being a staunch supporter of Israel when it's being led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is in so many ways such a deplorable figure and has failed so miserably in doing the one job that he had, which was to protect the Israeli people. And you go back before October 7th, and don't forget how bitterly divided Israeli society was by the radical policies of Benjamin Netanyahu and that you had people in the military and the defense forces and security forces who were warning at that time, this is making Israel more vulnerable. This is making the the situation more dangerous. Now we learn from the New York Times that Israeli officials actually had the memo, the detailed battle plans, and they failed to do anything about it. They thought, no way Hamas pulls that off. Right. Amazing. So it is one thing for Joe Biden to be a staunch supporter of Israel. 
It is something very different to hug Benjamin Netanyahu, who is a dangerous and divisive figure. So I think those are the two things that, that I'm going to be watching here. Look, I mean, this is a massive human tragedy on so many different levels. I hope that the Biden administration does not go squishy on this particular issue because there are some issues you can finesse and there are some issues you can't finesse. You cannot finesse the continued existence of Hamas. There is no compromise with Hamas. There is no coexistence with Hamas. Hamas is ISIS or perhaps even worse than ISIS. And, you know, we made the decision with our Iraqi allies that ISIS needed to be eliminated at horrendous cost. And there wasn't this kind of political division surrounding the destruction of, of ISIS. But it's hard to see how this ends in any positive way without the destruction of Hamas. The one thing I would add is when it comes to Prime Minister Netanyahu, according to my own reporting, is that the president is not sold on him. He's very frustrated with him privately and just feels like now is not the time to deal with that problem. But where things and, and where the president could start, you know, loosening his hug around Israel, where that may happen is in when you get to the post-war Gaza, that's where the disagreements are just so big between the Israeli government and and the Biden administration. And so how they figure that out, that it remains to be seen. I mean, we've already and we've seen the White House and the president and the secretary of state sort of moderate the way they talk about Israel. And, and we heard the secretary of state saying he publicly he got commitments that they weren't going to go in really hard in the south in Gaza. That's a little different than where they were in the beginning. But Policy-wise, there's not a change, but when you get to that post-war Gaza discussion, it's really you're really going to see a big divide. Well, and you have to say, when do you declare victory against Hamas? What does victory against Hamas look like? Is it so entrenched and embedded in Gaza? Where are you going to draw the line? And I think that as the story progresses that Charlie was talking about, what did they know when? And a, clearly a story like this should weaken Netanyahu domestically, that he did not do the one thing he promised the Israeli people that he would do, which is keep them safe. What does that mean? Will America have more influence in a weakened domestic Netanyahu than we do right now? And so these are, these are all the moving parts. And in the meantime, you have generational perspective on this that as we look at the need to, as Democrats, to drive young voters out to vote, well, this basically put a cold blanket on enthusiasm of young voters. And so, so it has domestic implications for us, domestic implications for Israel, but no one, absolutely no one, should say that Hamas was freedom fighting or doing anything other than raining down terror on innocent people. Great questions and points all, and there are dozens more where they came from, but we are out of time. Just have a minute or two for our final feature. Kind of odd to even move to levity, if you consider it, but we take a question from a listener and ha we all have to answer it in five words or fewer. Today's question is, as Stephen Colbert and others have been saying, who is Mike Johnson, the speaker uh, third in line for the presidency in five words or fewer. Could I ask you to start, Carol? I will start. It's going to be lame. Speaker of the House. <laughs> With a word left over. All right. There's an official NBC <laughs> bold journalistic view. Very bold. All right. Very bold. Yeah. 
Well, I'm tempted to say Jim Jordan in drag, but I think it's turning out to be worse. I think it's, uh, it is uh, Alex Jones in sheep's clothing. Wow, so good, old Senator, I don't envy you. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna be nearly as clever. I think he's an unknown political leader. Very good. I think all that's true, but man, the more you learn about his religious views, they're really kind of astonishing, even in today's Republican Party. So I'm gonna go religious absolutist dressed as accountant. And that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much to Senator Heitkamp, Carol, and Charlie. And thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, Joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Rest in peace, Sandra Day O'Connor, the 102nd Justice and first woman justice to serve on the United States Supreme Court. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry... As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McCardle, our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Special thanks to my dear friend, Tom Cagle. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.